sometimes people ask me, how is it possible for me to have written over 50 books with a busy schedule? And I tell them that uh, I never really wrote 50 books. I wrote one book, but I wrote it in 50 different ways. Because the thing that goes through all of my books is the importance of self-awareness and self-esteem. Now, I've practiced psychiatry for 40 years, and I firmly believe that if we exclude those psychiatric conditions that are primarily biological, such as bipolar disorders, that the majority of psychological problems that people have, adjustment problems, family problems, whatever, can be traced to one basic problem, and that is a low self-esteem. Now, I must define what I mean by low self-esteem. Low self-esteem means that a person is unaware of one's strengths and abilities and underestimates oneself. And it is really with the strength of a delusion because that person believes that she or he is the way they feel about themselves. And based upon that conviction, which to them is the most real thing in the world, they react to the rest of the world. And because it is a misconception, and because they are in fact much more adequate than they assume they are, they get into all kinds of difficulties. So, uh, that's the reason why I uh, am a champion of the importance of self-awareness and self-esteem. Now, I had no awareness of my own low self-esteem. In fact, I was already a psychiatrist for five years and had been a successful rabbi for ten years prior to that. And had anyone asked me, do you know yourself? I would have said, what, are you kidding? Of course I know myself. I wasn't aware that this wasn't true. And the incident that brought this to my awareness occurred when uh, I had two weeks of vacation coming. Now, I had been working as the medical director of a huge psychiatric hospital, 300 beds. And there were many private physicians who brought their patients in. And if the nurses could not get a hold of a particular physician, they called the medical director. And there were calls from patients, from families, from uh, social workers, and whatever. Also, the hospital had the only emergency psychiatric service in an area of 3,000 population. And it was a busy emergency room. And so on a good night, I'd be awoken by the emergency room perhaps four or five times. On a bad night, it could have been 12 times or even more. And it was really a tremendously stressful position. And when vacation time came up, I decided I needed a perfect rest. I didn't want to go sightseeing, I didn't want any activities. My concept of vacation was pure relaxation. I'm going to draw the blinds and uh, sit in a comfortable chair, put my feet up on an ottoman, 
and breathe. And we're going to do that for two weeks. Well, all of the possible vacation spots seem to be too busy. And finally, I decided on Hot Springs, Arkansas, because this was an isolated place and there was really nothing to do there, and there I could have my perfect, undisturbed rest. Now, Hot Springs, of course, has the mineral springs and the mineral baths, and uh, people swear that uh, these are curative. And because I had been a chronic back pain sufferer, I felt that while I was at uh, Hot Springs, I might as well enjoy the curative baths. Well, in the morning, the tenant took me into this little cubicle, gave me a couple of glasses of mineral water to drink, and showed me that the tub was full of hot water that was heated by the earth. And I uh, got into the tub, and he put on the whirlpool, and I relaxed. And this was wonderful. This was paradise. I could not be reached by anybody, not by any doctor, not by any patient, not by a nurse, my social worker, no, by, not by a lawyer, not by a probation officer. I, I can't be disturbed. This is what I wanted. And here I am in this wonderful whirlpool. What could be better than that? After about five minutes, I got up and I said to the attendant, that was just what I was hoping for. The attendant said, well, where are you going, sir? I said, I don't know. What do I do next? He says, well, um, after the whirlpool, you go into the cooling off room, but then to the massage, but first you must sit in the whirlpool for 25 minutes. I said, why? He says, because that's the way the treatment works. I went back into the whirlpool, and five minutes later I got up and I said to the attendant, look, I have to get out of here. The attendant said, well, if you do, uh, at the end of it, you don't go for the treatment. Well, since I didn't want to lose the treatment, I went back into the whirlpool for 15 minutes of absolute hell. Ah, it was a torture. Later that noon, I realized that I had a rude awakening. I had taken three years of constant stress, day and night, and survived it without difficulty. But I could not tolerate paradise for more than five minutes. Something was wrong. When I came back, I consulted a psychologist friend, and he said to me, look, if you were to ask people how they relax, one person will say, oh, I like to read a good book. Another person will say, uh, I like to watch a good program. Another person will say, I like to do needlework. I like to play golf. He said, do you realize that all of these people are telling you what they do in order to relax? But relaxation is not doing. Relaxation is an absence of doing. Now, what these people are referring to is not relaxation, but diversion. And those are fine diversions. But let's not confuse diversion with relaxation. Now, he says, when you were in that little cubicle in the whirlpool, you had no diversions. There was nothing to do, nothing to listen to, nothing to look at, uh, no one to talk to. You were left without any diversions. And when you were bereft of all diversions, you were in the immediate, intimate company of yourself. You know, it's very unpleasant if you're in a small room with someone you don't like very much. And that was a revelation to me 
that there was something about myself that I did not like so that I could not be comfortable with myself for more than five minutes. That was the beginning of my investigation as to what is it that I think about myself? Is my self-concept true? Why don't I like myself? And I then set on a course of trying to find out who the real self is. Now, I did talk with psychologists a number of times. But I must admit that most of my self-awareness came from my involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I was involved in the treatment of alcoholism, I began going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I discovered that they have a 12-step program for recovery. One of those steps requires doing a thorough, fearless, moral inventory. And I decided this is important to do. And so I did a moral inventory, and I had somebody look at it. And uh, it was edited, and I repeated it six times until, my, uh, until the person who I submitted to was satisfied with it. One of the reasons was that um, initially in doing the moral inventory, I had pointed out every mistake that I ever made. And then this uh, sponsor of mine said, well, that's not an inventory, that's a chimney sweep. An inventory means you tell the good about yourself as well as the mistakes. It was more difficult for me to write about the good about myself than about my mistakes. But by the time I was through with all of this, and that was over a period of, oh, a year and a half or two years, I had come to a self-awareness that I was a much better person than I had thought about myself, although I was not aware that I was thinking badly of myself. And I have a concrete proof that uh, my self-esteem has improved because I have been back to Hot Springs three times and I have no trouble staying in the Whirlpool for 25 minutes doing nothing other than relaxing. When people talk about low self-esteem, they usually assume that this is the result of some kind of exposure, some kind of trauma that a person suffered particularly in childhood. Uh, he was either abused or neglected by one's parents uh, or uh, failed at uh, school or uh, people made fun of him or her or uh, whatever, these kinds of negative experiences. Well, that did not explain why I felt that way about myself. I had wonderful parents. I had a nanny who doted on me. I excelled in school. I was a chess prodigy at age 10. And I was successful in most of what I did. And yet, my feeling of inferiority and inadequacy was uh, very profound in stark defiance of reality as I should have seen it. Now, where does that come from? I believe that this may be something following Freud's statement 
You know that Freud initially felt that uh, a person has a uh, pleasure-seeking instinct, a survival instinct, and that's about all. And later on in life, he came up with the idea, which is referred to as thanatos, meaning his death, that in addition to a self-survival instinct, the person also has a contradictory instinct, which is self-destruction. And if this is an instinct, that means it's present in everyone. Meaning that in every person, Freud said, there's a tendency to destroy oneself. And I believe that this uh, tendency to destroy oneself is the root of being crushed by delusions of inferiority and inadequacy. And uh, this would explain why it's so ubiquitous, why everyone seems to have at least some sort of low self-esteem problem, and why it can occur even though there was no external uh, negative factors. Now, obviously, if there are external factors, it will aggravate the low self-esteem, but it isn't the primary cause. So, yes, having abusive parents or being mocked at or whatever uh, certainly can aggravate a person's uh, low self-esteem and depress it further, but it isn't the primary cause. The low, my, my low self-esteem was very costly to me. I wrote a book called Life's Too Short, in which I described some of the more common maneuvers whereby a person tries to manage oneself with a feeling of low self-esteem. Uh, one of the things that I did, first I was an overachiever. Right? And uh, it wasn't that I was a high achiever, I was an overachiever. And this was because I had to prove, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of this, I had to, to prove to myself as to where as to as well as to other people that I was really good. Now, you'll say that was not a destructive drive, but it can become a destructive drive when it is for a uh, delusional purpose. Uh, I was a uh, brander. I had to tell people and I make up stories to show how great I was. I'm talking about when I was in grade school. Uh, later on uh, in life, uh, I was very sensitive. I could not tolerate any criticism. Uh, criticism, constructive criticism, hit at my very source because because I believed that I was inadequate and inferior. Uh, any kind of criticism would just reinforce that feeling, and it was terrible. I didn't realize, of course, that constructive criticism is what, what enables a person to grow. And if anyone in any way criticized me, I hated that person. I didn't want anyone to show me up for what I really was. Uh, I went out of my way to do things for people and became the world's greatest people pleaser. Because I was convinced that there's no reason why people should like me. In fact, if people really get to know me, they'll reject me. But the feeling of rejection is so painful that I had to do something to avoid it. And what I did was I tried to ingratiate myself to other people by doing things for them. I became a people pleaser, and that was costly to me and costly to my family, because I was too busy trying to 
protect my, my fragile ego. So those were uh, some of the things I did. I had an intense fear of failure. Now, no one likes failure. But you can't go through life without failures. But if something did not succeed, I was devastated. Let me give you an example. Uh, I gave uh, two lectures at a course for therapists who were in the course for continuing education. 110 therapists attended that course. Now, after they finished the course, they had to fill out an evaluation form. And a month later, I received a packet of 110 evaluation forms. And as I looked through them, they were all glowing, telling about how wonderful my lectures were. 109 glowing reports. One negative evaluation. And I was crushed. I went around depressed for three weeks because one person had said something negative about me. Now, later on, after three weeks, it occurred to me that 109 to 1 is not a bad score. And that probably that person, the reason he was critical of me that and saw me as negative, probably had an off day and didn't see anything as good. But that's not a normal reaction. Now, I still have my reversals and setbacks today. And uh, I submit a manuscript to a publisher and I got rejected by 15 publishers. That's not pleasant. But it doesn't bother me. Uh, I mean, I don't like the course. But I really end up feeling, not my fault that the publishers don't have good sense. Yeah, I know that my stuff is good. So, it is now totally different. And, uh, those kinds of reactions that uh, I uh, described to you, uh, those reactions to low self-esteem are very costly to one, to oneself and to one's family. As I said, I excelled in almost everything I did. And there was no way that anyone could think about me that I had a low self-esteem. My reality was that I was successful. My reality was that I was superior in many ways. And I, even I could see that. But the fact that I saw it did not change the way I felt about myself. And this is what's so uh, elusive and tricky about uh, self-esteem. Uh, that a person may be multiplied, multiply degree, uh, may have uh, great competence, may be a doctor, lawyer, CEO, whatever, uh, highly successful, and still walk around with delusions about oneself that uh, uh, can seriously affect how one behaves, how one acts. Because the feeling of low self-esteem is uh, mostly an unconscious feeling, uh, a person is not aware that one feels that way about oneself, and is not aware of the maneuvers that one takes to uh, defend oneself, or in some way to manage the feelings of inadequacy and, and low self-esteem. So that all of these years, until age 38, that I was walking around with low self-esteem, uh, and, and I was doing these defensive things which were costly to me, I had no idea that this was so. Uh, and of course there was no one who could point that out to me.
the awareness of uh, my having had a low self-esteem has changed the way I behave, but has not changed my course in life. I mean, this came after I had, was in my career as a psychiatrist, and uh, I remained, have remained in that, and I did not make any significant changes, except that, for example, I stopped being a people pleaser. Now, if somebody would have asked me in those days, uh, would you please do this for me? There was no way I could say no. I couldn't refuse to do anything that anybody wanted of me. But they would not like me. I have to do something, whatever they want, in order to please them. And these things were unrealistic. And nowadays, if someone asks something of me, I'd like to be, I'd certainly like to accommodate. But if I can't, I have no problem saying, I'm sorry, I just can't do it. Uh, I welcome criticism. I realize now that constructive criticism is the only way I can grow. And so, uh, when I submit a uh, manuscript and I get comments, uh, and critical comments, I'm happy that I have them. I look for them. Uh, that couldn't have happened before. So, there have been ways in which life has become much easier, uh, much, le uh, much less difficult, than when I had to go around uh, protecting my fragile self-esteem. I think it must be realized that 38 years of negative feelings are not going to be eradicated or changed in a day or a week or a month. This was a very gradual process. And uh, uh, it's difficult to point pinpoint any one day or whatever, but once I became aware that my feeling about myself was unrealistic, I began to look at everything in that light. And uh, my self-esteem continued to improve. Um, I think the first indication of it was, uh, as I mentioned, when two years later, when I went back to Hot Springs, and uh, I was able to stay in the tub for uh, 25 minutes. Uh, but even after that, uh, and it still persists, that I still have to work on my self-esteem. And I'll point out in a moment why that is. I'll point out the difference between relaxation and diversion. Now, in no way does that mean that diversion is bad. Uh, we all need some kind of entertainment, some kind of amusement, and that's a healthy need. Uh, but it is not relaxation. I think a person should be able to do both. Uh, and I tell people, you know, if you really want to know whether you have a good feeling about yourself or not, do a simple like that, uh, experiment. Sit in a quiet room, close the blinds, turn off the stereo, turn off the television, sit on an easy chair, close your eyes, and breathe. And see how long it is before you have to get up and do something. If you've got a good self-esteem, you should be able to sit comfortably doing nothing, nothing asleep, but comfortably relax for ten minutes. And if you find that you can't do that, you probably have the same problem that I had then. Now, uh, self-esteem, I think, is tied in to sense of responsibility. Uh, I think that 
the more we are aware of our strength and abilities, uh, the greater we have an obligation to fulfill them. The great uh, Rabbi Sorla Salant said, I know that my mind is equal to a thousand other minds, but therefore my obligations are a thousand times as great. It's interesting that there are some people who actually don't want to realize their own strengths because it puts the obligation and burden upon them to perform. And some people would rather wallow in inferiority because it's an excuse as to why they're not exerting themselves and why they're not performing. Now, the great Musa ethicists were very clear about saying low self-esteem is not humility. Low self-esteem is a delusion and it's not a desirable trait. Whereas humility is a very desirable trait. So humility means knowing the truth about oneself, knowing one's strength and knowing one's abilities, but not thinking that therefore that makes me a more worthy person than someone else. And humility means uh, I do everything I can, I exercise my strength, but I still respect other people and I don't put myself above them. That's humility. And in fact, you can't really be humble if you don't have good self-esteem. One might ask, how does relaxation put into a Torah lifestyle? Well, we have to realize that a Torah lifestyle requires optimum health. And anything that detracts from optimum health is uh, antithetical to Torah. For example, the great sage of Chofetz Chaim would come into the Bismethodist to the study hall at midnight and tell all the students to get out and go to sleep. He said, trying to study until 2 o'clock in the morning, you may think it's good, but it'll leave you tired and exhausted for the next day and you won't be able to concentrate. So that a person has to have a healthy amount of rest, a proper judicious exercise, and judicious relaxation and judicious diversion in order to be in optimal condition and you have to be in optimal condition in order to be able to do the best in your observance of Torah and Mitzvahs. I guess one could ask, do I look upon this experience as something which Hashem wanted me to go through in order to be able to teach people about their self-esteem. It's comforting to think about that. So, I can tell you this much. My first book on self-esteem that was written for the Jewish population was a book entitled Let Us Make Man, where I talk about the need for self-awareness. Uh, I can't tell you how many people have told me that that book made a change in their life. I've since then written other books, again, elaborating on that thing. But uh, uh, I very much may feel that perhaps I was a shaliyah to uh, be able to bring uh, a, a, a comfort to uh, people who suffer from low self-esteem. Whenever I lecture about self-esteem, invariably someone will ask, well, what can we do 
to give our children self-esteem. And my answer to that is you can't give your children self-esteem. All you can do is to provide them with circumstances that they will be able to develop their self-esteem. And I suggest, for example, that, you know, we catch our children doing something wrong. Catch your children doing something right three times a day. Children do things that are right, but we don't pay attention to them. We only pay attention to what they do that's wrong. And so we emphasize the negative instead of the positive. I think children need love, and children need unconditional love. Uh, I think that there's a way to discipline children without putting them down. My father, for example, uh, used to say, uh, when he disapproved of something that I did, he would say, why, why are you doing something that's beneath your dignity? Uh, you know, in fact, if it wasn't for that, my self-esteem would have probably been much worse. I think that was a uh, saving grace that, that my father uh, disciplined me in that way. So we have to be careful. You never tell your children, you're bad, you're stupid. If you're uh, disciplining the child, you say, you know, what you did was wrong, but not you are bad. Don't make a statement like that, right? Uh, you can tell them the act that you did was not appropriate and have it as a learning experience. I also strongly suggest that parents and teachers read a book, not one that I did not write, read a book entitled Building Self-Esteem in Children. The author is Patricia Burney. She's an excellent child psychologist and also a teacher. And she has some very good insights for uh, parents and teachers. One of the problems in our educational system is that, uh, first of all, uh, we are overwhelmed. Our teachers are overwhelmed with work. It would be ideal if they could uh, develop a relationship with each child. Uh, but circumstances make it so difficult. Uh, I think, though, that to the extent that that is possible, uh, teachers should develop a relationship to their uh, students. Uh, and schools should foster such relationships uh, so that a, a child feels that she or he is appreciated. Now, we have to be careful because the standard in some schools is such that there's some children who can't keep up to it. And uh, we have to then see how to individualize uh, our educational system to allow those children to achieve up to their potential and to realize that one a person who has achieved one's potential or is working toward achieving one's potential uh, is as deserving as someone of a much higher potential. Uh, we should not be uh, guided by the end result of what grade a person gets, but rather by the effort that a person puts into it. And I think that requires uh, a change in philosophy of our uh, educational system. If a person sees the problem oneself, I congratulate them. Then you are where I was in the uh, uh, Hot Springs episode. Uh, and if you're aware that you have a problem, then you have to begin doing things about trying to enhance your self-esteem. Read up on the problems of self-esteem. Uh, there are suggestions in the books on self-esteem on what you should do. Uh, 
Some of them are, uh, like one book that I wrote, Ten Steps to Being Your Best, gives you a program of how to work at it, and if you work at it, instead of just reading the book. But if you really put your energy and diligently work at it, it can help you with improving self-esteem. But sometimes books are not enough, and one must uh, look for uh, a, a therapist uh, to uh, help with self-esteem. What about if you say that someone that you know is suffering with low self-esteem? It may be quite obvious. You may tell them so. You may tell them, look, you're a much better person than you give yourself credit for. Uh, and if you don't feel that way, maybe you ought to look into it and uh, make some pleasant discovery about yourself. The problem is that even though that's very reasonable, that the low self-esteem is not a logical condition. And uh, if a person has the delusion that she or he is negative and inadequate and inferior, that to them is more real than reality. And you're telling them that they are not inferior is not going to help. Give me an example. I had a patient who was a board-certified pediatrician who was depressed and whose self-esteem was just horrible, deplorable. And I said to her, Tell me some good things about yourself. She said, like what? I said, like anything. Just tell me some of your good qualities. She sat there for several minutes and clearly unable to think of anything. I opened her chart and I said to her, look, here's some background information that you cannot deny. You won Phi Beta Kappa Award in college. Now, they don't give Phi Beta Kappa Award to dummies. That is an indication of your intelligence. Now, when I asked you to tell me something good about yourself, the least you could have done is you could have said, all right, I'm not stupid, you know, I won five at a capital. And her response to me was, when they told me that I won the five at a capital award, I knew they made a mistake. So, uh, telling somebody, you know, you're really good, you're really uh, likable, you're a wonderful person, it's nice to hear. But, unfortunately, that doesn't always make a significant impact. It's about 40 years since I made for me what was a momentous discovery that I thought I knew myself and became aware that I didn't. And 40 years that I've been working on getting to know myself better. Now, it's important to realize that after a person works and develops a better self-esteem and has a good self-image, that there are still occasions when that feeling of inadequacy and inferiority and all that goes along with it may come back. So, let me point something out to you. Here is a piece of cardboard. Okay? It's a stiff cardboard. Now watch. If I put pressure on it, it doesn't bend. It does not bend. Resist. Okay, now watch this. I bend it, but let me straighten it out now. Okay, now it's perfectly straight just like it was before. Ah, there's one difference. There's a crease. That crease is a weak spot. So that if I put pressure over here, it does not bend. But if I put pressure over here, it bends very easily. Why? 
Because even though it is straight now, just like the other side, it has a crease. And that crease is a weak spot. The fact that one person has had a low self-esteem creates a crease. And even though years, or later, years later, she or he may have developed a very fine self-esteem and think well of themselves, any kind of reversal, any kind of thing that would tend to make them feel negative about themselves can cause a resurrection, uh, a recurrence of that low self-esteem feeling. So, sometimes when things happen, so I send a manuscript to a publisher and I get it back with a rejection. Momentarily, I may have a reawakening of that old feeling. But instead of going around for three weeks feeling depressed because of a rejection or because of criticism, I catch myself very quickly. And it doesn't have to last more than a few minutes, an hour at the most. So, uh, it's important to be aware that building self-esteem causes, it's necessary for happiness. You can't really be happy in life if you're delusional about yourself and you don't think well of yourself. Uh, but, uh, having achieved a better self-esteem does not mean that there are never going to be recurrences. And we ought to be on guard for them and realize when they occur that this is a recurrence of the delusion and uh, because we have built a good self-esteem it's quite simple to uh, uh, dispel it and not go around to, to be depressed. One other point I'd like to point out about self-esteem. There are some people who have what I refer to as a global low self-esteem. They think they're inferior in everything. They think they're unlikable, inferior, inadequate, you name it. There are some people who have what I call a compartmentalized low self-esteem. Meaning, they know that they are adequate and superior even in some areas, but not in others. An example of this was my personal physician. He was a tremendous person, but he did not realize that. He would come to the hospital, begin his work at 6 o'clock in the morning, and between the hospital and his office, uh, would not go home until 11, 12 o'clock at night. Some of the nurses thought that his wife must be a terrible person, that's why he avoids home. Later on, I got to meet his wife. She was a wonderful person. And what she said to me was, she said, uh, you know how devoted John is to his medical practice. She says, but I'm the needy person, and I needed a shoulder to put my head on. He was never there for that. Our children grew up without a father. If they got sick, he treated them. But he was never a father to them in terms of guiding them. And as I got to know him better, I realized that he knew he was excellent as a physician. Therefore, he felt comfortable in his role as a physician in the hospital and the office. But at home they did not need a physician. They needed a human being, a person. And he did not feel that he had anything to offer as a person. So that's what I call a compartmentalized uh, low self-esteem. And uh, uh, just because a person is highly successful and feels adequate in one area does not necessarily mean that that's the way she or he feels about themselves in other areas.